episode 52, Patrick and Cyprian speak with returning guest Todd Brunn of the University of Southern California. Among other topics, the team discuss error correction, non-Markovian errors, the limitations of current quantum processors, and the battle between numbers of qubits and amounts of noise. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hey, Cyprian, how you doing today? Hey, Patrick, I'm doing well and looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things. I'm pretty sure you'll be uh, well satisfied today. So we're joined by Todd. Todd, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Hi, I'm Todd Brunn. I'm a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Southern California, and I work on quantum computing and other quantum things. And you've been a guest before, so this is not your first rodeo. Uh, and we appreciate you coming back. Um, I understand that you've been working with error correction quite a bit, and that's a hot topic right now. Do you you want to share what, what your insights might be on that? Sure. Error correction is really the key to scaling up quantum computing to be able to do really non-trivial things. So what got everyone very excited about quantum computing were, were big results, but particularly Peter Shore's result about factoring large numbers but to do that, you need a pretty sizable quantum computer, and it's difficult to build one because of decoherence and other forms of noise and uncertainty. So error correction is the way around that, but it's it's a technical challenge. Uh, we're right on the cusp where these systems have the capabilities that are required for doing error correction, but you really want to be not right on the cusp, you want to be sort of well over that line before you, yeah. you really start scaling. So so we talk about physical versus logical qubits when we talk about this. So that, you know, when when I have a chip, like the chips that IBM is, it, they just came out with their 400 qubit 33. chip. 433. Okay. Yep. 433. Um, now, because of error correction, you're not going to be able to use all of those qubits as in, a, in they're not ideal qubits there's not 400 idealized logical qubits it's physical qubits and That's so right. you're trying to push back that so that we can get to a point eventually where it's one to one where we have one physical qubit and it acts like a logical qubit but we're far 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 from that correct yeah i don't know if we'll ever reach that milestone it's pretty tough to make a physical qubit that can do everything we need a qubit to do that is as reliable as that, that we could run a really large quantum computation without the need for error correction. So there will almost certainly long-term be a difference between the, the number of physical qubits and the number of logical qubits. Now, is that different from modalities? Like you get photonics, trapped ions, superconducting circuits. Is it uniform across those, or do some of them have more of a need for error correction than others? Some of them certainly do need error correction more than others, and the specific types of noise are pretty different in different physical types of qubits. But the principles of error correction are, are surprisingly similar across all of the different uh, realizations. And uh, in a sense, it's a, it's a ratio between how many operations you can do uh, and how long it takes to do an operation and how long before noise 
you know, wipes everything out. And uh, that uh, the actual physical timescales may be very different in different kinds of computers, like on ion traps. Uh, these timescales are pretty slow. They they operate on a on a, on the order of microseconds, whereas in a superconducting chip, it's more on the order of nanoseconds. So that's a mm. factor of a thousand. But you know how many gates you can get done before the noise wipes you out. That that ratio or that that number is not that wildly different between the two different realizations. So one of the things that I cited, I cite a lot um, because it, it has to do with Shor's algorithm is in 2015, there was a paper that said it would take um, a billion physical qubits to do um, the Shor's algorithm needed to break RSA 2048, which is kind of the standard uh, gold standard for encryption. And then in 2019, another paper came out and said, you need 20 million. And I saw that as not a re- not a rebuke of the first paper, but more of wow, error correction has really moved fast in four years. Yeah, there's been a lot of advances. And uh, up until 10 or 15 years ago, error correction was almost entirely a theoretical subject, quantum error correction, I should say, because we didn't have any computers that we could even think about doing error correction on. They, They were all too small and too noisy. And so people concentrated largely on trying to develop new kinds of codes and proving what you might call scaling relationships, uh, proving that in principle, if the noise rate gets below a threshold, that you can scale up your computation to be of unlimited size. So these were the kind of computer science scaling arguments that you see in other fields like complexity where they don't really sort of worry about the overall overhead, but only about the way it scales with the size of the computation. And they showed that that scaling was reasonable. It scales like a polynomial in the log of the size of the quantum circuit you're trying to do. But the methods they used to prove that had gigantic prefactors in front of them. So you would need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of physical qubits for every logical qubit that you were trying to uh, create. Are we we still in, we're not still in that realm? No, because people have started much more focusing on what are we going to be able to do? Because we have real quantum computers now. Exactly. So they're still, like I said, they're right on the edge. People are experimenting with error correction in these actual quantum processors and there are at least a few examples where you can get at least a marginal improvement. But like I said, we're right on that boundary. So these threshold theorems, that threshold is a kind of point of diminishing returns. If your noise rate is below that threshold, then error correction helps you. And so adding error correction actually reduces the, the amount of errors. And that may seem obvious. But when you do error correction, you're adding a lot of complexity. When you encode something in an error correcting code, you're encoding something in a larger number of qubits, and all of them are subject to noise as well. Yeah. So the total amount of noise goes up. So it's the balance between the amount of noise you're adding 
by encoding and having to do encoded gates and all that kind of thing. And the number of errors that you can correct by doing that. And if you can correct more errors than you're adding, then you're on the winning side. And if if you're on the losing side, then, yeah. then you just made everything it's a, worse. It's a balancing act. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's very interesting because for years I've been hearing this, uh, 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 let's say, argument or opinion that, well, error correction is still questionable in quantum computing precisely because uh, the required, let's say, number of physical qubits would induce so much additional noise, right, that the whole thing, instead of converging towards stability, would just kind of go haywire. So if I understand correctly, then what you're saying is that we're just, we've just crossed that kind of line, right, where error correction actually becomes a thing, so to speak, in quantum computing, in a sense that the two uh, kind of necessary conditions. One is the improvement in the quality of physical qubits, and on the other side, the improvement in the quality of the error correction process itself, right, allows us to have like a net positive gain on the stability of the of the system. Would that be a fair uh, interpretation of the current situation? Yeah, that's totally fair. It's exactly a, a trade-off like that and that could be boiled down into a threshold. It's a little more complicated because different kinds of noise may exist in your system and have different effects. But roughly speaking, if you're below that, then you're on the side where by adding more and more error correction, you will continue to make things better and better. But you really want to be well below that threshold because uh, it diverges as you approach the threshold. So if you have no noise at all, you don't need error correction. If you have a little bit of noise, then you can use pretty efficient error correction, error correction using codes with high rates where the encoded gates are not very complicated and you don't need to correct all that often. But as you approach that threshold from below, you need to pile on more and more error correction so that your computer spends almost all its time doing error correction. And it actually diverges as you hit the threshold. Um, so it's, it's best to be well below the threshold, an order of magnitude or, be, or more below the threshold, and then you can kind of really make progress. And we're right so in, in, in that area now where we've just sort of, in many ways, we are below the threshold for, for some schemes anyway, but we don't have big enough processors. And to to really do something non-trivial, we would really like to be quite a bit below the threshold. So in other words, it's fair to say that at this point, the pressure is on the the builders of the qubits, right, to make them more, let's say, um, stable? That is absolutely true. And, you know, if someone asked me, would I like a processor with twice as many qubits or a processor with half as many qubits but one-tenth the amount of noise, I would definitely go for the second one. That said, we really want both. Of course. Yeah, of course. One one of the things that I... I, uh, 
am, am thinking quite a, quite a lot about, right? And because we mentioned different building modalities here, like, like superconducting and ion traps and things like that. And it's important to, to, to mention to our audience that the, the topology of these systems, right, is designed and defined in a way that not all qubits can, let's say, uh, communicate with each other, communicate in a broader sense, right? You can't apply, let's say, entanglement to any pair of qubits and things like that, right? So my question is, how much does the topology of your qubits uh, uh, interfere or how much does uh, does it, let's say, impact the process of, of, of error correction? And uh, a different maybe formulation of my question is, in addition to the stability of the qubits, do they really need also to work on the topology side of the interconnections between the qubit? Is, is that a factor that also, let's say, could help error correction? It's certainly a factor, but not a totally crucial one. Having a limited connectivity between your qubits makes error correction more difficult, and you pay a price for that if you think of it in terms of a threshold, that'll make the threshold a bit lower. You need mm -hmm. your noise to be a bit lower to compensate for the fact that you're going to have to be moving information around more. But it's it's surprisingly not that big an effect. And there are some quantum error correcting codes that are specifically designed with this kind of geometric locality in mind. One of the codes that people are working on most right now is called the surface code. It derives from a code invented by Alexei Kataev at uh, Caltech called the toric code. But uh, the toric code lives on a torus, which is not a very convenient thing in the real world. So the surface code kind of opens that out on a plane. And the nice thing about it is that the error checks that you have to do to, to catch and correct your errors are all local geometrically. So it's only qubits that are neighboring. So you can think of it as like a square grid on, on a surface, which is great because a lot of the implementations are planar in that way. They're on chips. Right. You know? yep. So they're 2D. So you only need to connect the local qubits in order to do error correction. And they've worked out how to do all the operations that you need to do for quantum computation in this code. It's quite an elaborate uh, set of results, which it's difficult to summarize. But these are also quite good codes. And it's a family of codes that scales up nicely. So if you need a little more error correcting power, you can go to a slightly bigger surface code. So this is one reason people are very interested in this particular code. And the high quality of the code, the fact that it's pretty good at correcting errors, also means that the total number of physical qubits per logical qubit has not been as bad as those very pessimistic results that you mentioned before, where you needed a billion qubits to do short. <clears throat> if I if I can ask about that, so you know we we mentioned that IBM has a chip, and it's four hundred and thirty three. They're they're claiming that next year they'll go to a thousand plus, and the year after they're talking about four thousand plus, which is really it's actually faster than Moore's law, 
when you think about raw process, when you think about bits, um, you know, it's still, we're still down in a very low number of bits, but at this point, given the error correction we have, and, and actually I should probably ask is superconducting something you're doing a lot of experimentation on, but how many of those bits can I use right now? I've heard some people say, oh, you can only use about a dozen of those because of the error correction needs. And so we're really up to a dozen logical bits as far as the, the, the ceiling on computing. Is that, is that where we are? Because people get lost in the logical versus physical. And the secret to that translation is the error correction and how good it's, it's been. Yeah, I don't work on one specific modality. I'm a theorist, so I think about things. And in my mind, when I think about them, they always work, which is a, a, a great comfort, uh, one that the experimenters, I think, wish they, they could share. But uh, <laughs> It's true. It's very true. Uh, but yeah, that ratio is, is key. Because if you encode a qubit in a code, so if we imagine just encoding a single qubit in a single code word, then you have some ratio, the length of the code word to the number of qubits, in this case, just one. So your 433 qubits are the physical qubits, and the number of logical qubits will therefore be a lot smaller. And Mm -hmm. so if you actually can do error correction in these new chips, and I don't know if they're able to do that right now, you're only going to have a relatively small number of logical qubits, ones yeah. that could still be simulated on a classical computer. But you know, we're developing the methods so that we can scale up. And that's the key. IBM, for instance, has this concept they call quantum volume, which more or less is a measure of how big a quantum computation you can do, given the size of the chip and the level of the noise yeah and once you hit the low enough noise rate you can suddenly start having that expand very dramatically uh so you could go to bigger and bigger chips and those extra qubits would actually help you i've heard that when i read about the new chips they're trying to come out with that 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 is the key part of it is they're they're trying to get it so that you can make more use of more of the qubits uh, and, and I don't know if it's a thousand, I don't think it's a thousand to one right now, right now on, on their chip, but maybe it is. And that's the problem is that's where the hype comes from is because when you talk about physical qubits and people know that the algorithms need so many logical qubits and we exchange those, and then you find out, oh, it's a thousand to one or a million to one. It, it, it feels like overhyped or misrepresentation. And we're trying to tamp that down and get the expectations to be reasonable. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a moving target because it also depends on how big a computation you're trying to do. If you're doing a rather short computation, there's less time for errors to happen and you don't need as much protection. As you go to larger computations, then you'll need more powerful codes. The scaling, like I said, is not that bad in theory. It scales like a polylog, that is a polynomial and a logarithm of the size of the ideal circuit you're trying to do. So that's the additional multiplier for the extra overhead. But that said, I mean, the ratio up until now has been pretty close to infinity to one because if you encoded, it actually was worse because we we just didn't quite have the capability 
to do everything you need to do in error correction and and have a better result at the end of the day than if you just hadn't done encoding at all. Yeah. There's there there is are some demonstrations. There's one from the Yale group from a few years ago where they actually demonstrated error correction against the actual native noise in their system, not fake noise, that showed an improvement for using error correction. But it was right on the borderline. Hmm. So we're we're a little bit better now and people are are working hard on it. And there's a theoretical side. We may be able to do it in smarter ways. So the early threshold results were using a scheme called concatenated codes, where you encoded every logical qubit in a separate code word. And then if that didn't give you enough oomph in your error correction, then each of the physical qubits of that code word got encoded in a code word and so forth. Mm. So you can see that's going to get big really, really fast. Yeah, It's a very inefficient kind of code, but theoretically tractable because it has this kind of... Redundancy. Yeah, exactly. It's like a, a recursive structure, like a fractal yeah. practically. So that mean analysis was easier because you could sort of look at one level of your concatenation at a time. But that's clearly not a great code from any objective yeah. standard. So the surface code and similar codes to that are much better and they're more flexible. You don't take this giant exponential hit every time you add a layer of concatenation. But there may be even better codes. That's one of the things that I work on is trying to figure out practical schemes where we can use codes that encode multiple logical qubits in a single code word. Oh, nice. So for communication, this is done routinely, classically. It, it's the only way to approach the capacity of a channel is to use codes like that. For computation, classically, we haven't really needed it that much. So there, there hasn't been a lot of classical work to draw on for that. But we have good reason to believe that you can do everything in a code word like this that would have a much lower overhead. Wow. And so a number of us have been working on this. This is kind of a that's cool. A smaller side effort, but yeah. potentially the payoff could be large if we could actually make it work. If if we switch to modality again, I know and I know you're dealing with theoretical. One one of the things that that Cyprian and I have watched with bated breath is whether Microsoft's going to make a real play with the fermion um, that and the topological qubits that they're trying to do. Because the the theory is that if they can get that to work, they'll scale quickly and efficiently and the noise will be minimal because they're topological they're they're not they're not as quixotic they're not as susceptible to noise and the other one that's caught my attention that i don't think anybody has actually done anything with is the idea of using the diamond surface with um you know flaws you know nitrogen nitrogen uh i i assume that might be somewhat resistant to um, noise as well, but it also might be resistant to calculations as well. Who knows? So I, I'm it's, hoping that it's you- also very difficult to build practically because yeah. inducing those defects in an artificial way proves to be very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm I, there. So there's other modalities that might emerge in the next 10 years that could shake the game up quite a bit. But the fact is that the error correction that you're looking at will always will help us no matter what. Because we'll always need some error correction. There's, we can't. Um, we're never going to get, as you said, perfect qubits. And so, having these error correction schemes is just going to make it more efficient as we go. 
There, there's also something that I would like to add here as a question. Um, is there any like approach or or any proposal to do quantum error correction that does not involve codes? Because I, it seems to me that I've heard that there are some uh, proposals to let's say in, introduce some uh, uh, additional gates or things like that that would act having error correction as some kind of side effect, right? But are not really based on on encoding. So I'm just curious, are you aware of of any uh, approach uh, like this? Yeah. So to take those sort of one at a time, the the approach that Microsoft is going for, topological quantum computing, that would really be a game changer in that those systems are, in some sense, intrinsically fault-tolerant. And that idea was also invented by Alexei Kataev at Caltech, wasn't at Caltech at the time. But uh, you can actually say the surface code is a way of simulating a topological quantum computer with ordinary qubits. So that's a, I mean, that's a fair way of thinking about it. It's it's a bit a bit different in certain ways. Uh, and if people could really do that, then it would be uh, it would be a, a dramatic difference because then you would actually need only a little bit of error correction for for a few things. The actual operations themselves would have a kind of intrinsic protection, hmm. but it requires the existence of something called uh, adi- non adi- non abelian anions, and these are. Uh, hypothetical quasi-particles, they're excitations of a two-dimensional field theory that may exist at the interface between two bulk materials. So if you imagine a layer of one material and then a layer of a different material with different electronic properties, at that interface between them, there is a bunch of electrons that are trapped there and that's sometimes called a 2D electron gas because they're more or less confined in two dimensions. And you can describe that with a kind of quantum field theory in two dimensions. And in two dimensions, things are very different than in three dimensions. And you can get these new kinds of particles. They're not real particles, but they're excitations of this field called anions that can be used in principle to do quantum computing. But not every version of this has that capability. You really need what they call non-abelian ones, where braiding them around each other does very non-trivial operations to the to the state of this field. So Microsoft's been working on that. You could call that kind of a, another sort of long shot approach. But if it pays off, then that would be fantastic. Um, the thing about modalities in general is that it does affect things. So for instance, ion traps are not affected by as much anyway by this locality constraint that superconducting qubits have but it's also harder to scale them up in other ways and i think patrick you asked me another thing and now i'm forgetting about uh, it was that. about the diamond surface thing that oh the yeah Supreme in, commented on in these centers and diamond yeah so those have a very nice property they are little defects in the crystal lattice of diamond that act like quantum systems, even at room temperature. So that's fantastic because a lot of these things have to be done at very, very low temperatures. The superconducting ones operate around 
10 or 15 millikelvin and have to live in a dilution refrigerator, which also makes controlling them very complicated because you have lines that go in from the outside where it's room temperature down into this extremely cold environment. You don't want to introduce heat or noise by doing that. It it makes the engineering much more difficult. But as, as Cyprian said, the the fabrication of a system with a lot of these NV centers in a regular array with control circuitry and all of that that you would need to build a computer, right now we don't quite have that capability. So that there are people who study them, but they mainly use them for things like quantum sensing and so forth. Um, so as for alternatives to error correction with codes, there are other approaches that are sometimes called error suppression or error mitigation. Uh, one of the best of these is a technique called dynamical decoupling, where you apply very fast pulses to your qubits that flips their states around very quickly in a, in a sort of pattern. Now, this might seem bizarre because it just seems like doing that would add extra noise. But the reason that this is a helpful thing to do is because while we often treat the errors that happen in a quantum computer as if they're instantaneous, in many systems, and superconducting ones in particular, they actually take time. They're continuous interactions between your qubits and other stuff out in the environment. I mean, these are on a solid substrate. There's lots of other degrees of freedom around for them to interact with. So keeping them isolated is tough. But the funny thing is that as they interact with all of this garbage out in the environment, if you keep flipping them around, they you kind of undo this interaction. So, Or you can think of it as you're kind of averaging it away to zero as you do it. So that can suppress a lot of errors. It suppresses what we call non-Markovian errors, errors where there's an appreciable uh, time period over which this interaction happens. So that's actually much easier to do than error correction. You don't need encoding. And Mm. it uh, only requires the ability to do pulses on individual qubits, which is much easier than doing multi-qubit operations that you need to do for encoded operations and so forth. So people are working on that, and that has already shown major effects on improving the quality of computations. It's been done in in, uh, Mm. IBM chips and other chips. They've tested it, and it, it can make a huge difference where the... If you run a circuit that would be wiped out by noise after only a relatively short time. If you add these dynamical decoupling pulses, you can actually extend the length of time over which this will work uh, by a significant factor. And it also gets rid of some other bad effects like crosstalk, where doing an operation on one qubit spills over and acts on some of the other qubits that you don't want. I mean, So that's a great method. Isn't this flipping actually be equivalent to a gate that's being applied to to a qubit? So does that mean that your algorithms would need to factor in 
this kind of pulse? Otherwise, wouldn't they be disrupted by this pulse? Yeah, you have to work it in so that it doesn't interfere with the circuit you're trying to do. So mm, that okay. requires mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in principle, there's a lot of advantages to doing this. And in fact, there's work that shows that doing what we call randomized versions of these algorithms, we start with a circuit and then we add in a bunch of random gates on everything mm-hmm. as we're going along. And uh, it's designed so that the effect of all these random gates cancels out at the end and it gives you the same answer as the circuit you started huh. from. That is but super the, interesting. Yeah, but the randomization can uh, average away your interactions with the environment and has other good effects as well. It can make your noise look more like our idealized models of noise and less like whatever it really is out there in the world. I, I have what might be a either a great or a horrible analogy. But as I think about this, I'm trying to think of, I always think, try to think of analogies for, for how to understand this. So imagine a plate balanced on the tip of a, a sharp object, a pencil or something like that. If something lands on the plate, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spoil its equilibrium. But if I'm spinning the plate, then it reflects those kinds of things that might interfere with its equilibrium. And so uh, in a a manner, it's almost like you're spinning the plate. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. We we are kind of, by doing these random things, we're averaging the noise in certain ways so that some of the effects become negligible. But I don't know. It's an interesting, is it like you know, a gyroscope that's stabilized. I've never, I've never thought about it that way, but you know, maybe that's a good analogy. Have yeah. to think or, about it. or even playing, playing on it, <laughs> Patrick is what, what you would actually do is, so you have the plate, you don't spin it, but in order to prevent the effect of that one object, uh, kind of tipping the plate, you are constantly dropping multiple objects at different points of the plate so that their action cancels out and the plate is is, yeah. is in equilibrium. Right. So if I have like one unit of weight, one, you know, milli newton would, would offset it. But if I hit all sides of it with one newton at all times, then it, it can't, it, everything else is negligible. Oh, I like yeah. that now. Okay. I, would, yeah. I, I, I have to have an analogy in order to communicate this stuff. It's the, <laughs> sure. it's the most well, it it is hard to convey in simple language why some of these things work, but you know the math of it is not actually that hard, and the fact that we can do these very fast pulses means that methods like dynamical decoupling are almost certainly going to be a part of future fault tolerant quantum computers. Well, you- you do theory and you do this analysis and stuff, but you're also teaching on a regular basis. And so is that gotten as easier or harder? What's, you know, what's the, what's the stat, state of the art there? It's kind of exciting because the growth of the field and the growth of interest in the field has sparked a growth in interest from students in learning about it. So we have offered a number of classes at USC in quantum computing and related things for years, 
but the number of students has really gone up. And we've actually added a bunch of new classes, and we've added a degree program. We've added a Master of Science in Quantum Information Science program at USC involving classes both in electrical engineering and in physics and in computer science and chemistry. And this has been around only about two years now, but we've already had our first two classes arrive. And uh, even students outside this program are also taking these classes on quantum computing at much higher rates. So this semester, I'm teaching a class called EE520, Introduction to Quantum Information Processing. I've Mm. taught this class since 2004, repeatedly. And typically, it would get somewhere between 12 and 18 grad students and the occasional very bold undergraduate uh, (laughs) in a a given (laughs) semester. But this semester... There were 37 students registered. It it doubled in size from the last time I taught it. And that, I think, just reflect it reflects some of these new master's students, but also just the broader interest. The majority of them are not in this program. They're actually in in more traditional electrical engineering or physics programs. Wow. So so you're getting not only more, but you're getting more on the, the people who are like just realizing this is something they need to know something about. Yeah. Students, they pay attention to what's going on in the world around them, and it shapes their goals. So since I'm in an engineering department in particular, a lot of them come in with a goal of wanting to go and work in a particular industry. And the quantum industry, if you will, is starting to be seen as a as a viable career path for some of these students. So I think some of it is that, and some of them just think it's cool and want to know more about it. Interesting. I, we, what Cyprian and I, when we do our speeches both together and apart, <clears throat> it's always that, you know, trying to get that initial audience to understand without frying their brain or making them gloss over and fall asleep. And so what I find is very useful is <clears throat> I do the uh, superhero analogy. I say, look, I don't, I don't question how Superman flies when I first watch the movie. Maybe I can do that later. So just suspend disbelief and accept these concepts on face value. And I avoid the math and the physics until, you know, a, a longer period of time. Is is that a model you go through, or you already they already have to know what superposition and entanglement kind of mean before you get there, or you well, you starting from first principles? We we start more or less from first principles. So these are graduate classes, and we assume the students have a math background, so they know okay. linear, linear algebra and okay. stuff like that, but. I have been thinking about whether we will start extending this educational initiative further further down into the undergraduate curriculum mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if you know a decade or two from now or even sooner than that perhaps even at the high school level people start seeing some of this stuff at least as you know, at the level of being aware uh, that it exists and some of the general principles. We had I a mean, guest on not too long ago that was a high school teacher in Brooklyn that is teaching this to high school kids. Well, that kudos. Yeah, uh, we were surprised. You you can 
teach things at different levels. So if you're trying to teach people who want to go on and be professionals in this field, they need to know things at a pretty technical level. But if people want to know why do quantum computers behave differently from classical computers, you can give them a pretty good idea of that without having to get into a ton of math. It's still a little unintuitive. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, there's still more people that know nothing about it than there are that, that listen to this podcast and know something about it. Sadly. Uh, we're working on it though. We're working on it though. Um, so is there anything works? We we're kind of, uh, 40 minutes went by real quick. Uh, <laughs> so like stunningly. I, I remember Patrick, the last time it was the same situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Discussions we thought are like <laughs> minutes are flying. <laughs> yeah. I gotta, I gotta sit through his classes. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to highlight? Any, any other, I mean, you mentioned, I'm sure we could do another show on the, the work you're doing. Is there anything we missed uh, given that we, we try to keep the episodes less than an hour? Well, the field is very exciting right now, and we're starting to see this synergy between efforts in industry and academic efforts and, you know, more traditional research. The The model of classical computing, it's not exactly the same, but you can think of it in the early days, there were a handful of sort of very special bespoke machines built by a few pioneers, ENIAC and yep. uh, von Neumann's computer at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and, and a few of these other ones. They were all one-offs. And after a while, there was a computing industry and companies built computers. And the idea that a bunch of professors, rather than use one of these industrial computers, would actually try to build their own would seem quite bizarre nowadays. <laughs> so we're at the cusp of that transition where the development and the engineering are being increasingly taken over by companies like IBM and Google and Intel and Honeywell and, and startups like Rigetti and HiNQ and so forth. And academic research is shifting its focus to both working on kind of new concepts that may be necessary to go the distance further down the line and working on how to make their ideas practical for the machines that we have and that we're going to have in the next few years. Yeah. And we're seeing this realignment right now. So far, it's still going strong and the field is still growing. So, you know, knock wood that no major barrier arises. But it's a very exciting time after years of sort of gradual growth of the field, mainly in academia and government research labs, suddenly it's a new ball game. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely exciting. And and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I, I, I'm sure we'll ask you back again. Hopefully we haven't uh, <clears throat> scared you off yet. No, no, not at all. Uh, thank you, Patrick Cyprian, for inviting me once again. Thanks for talking to us. We'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. It's been a great talk. Bye.